Here's something new and exciting. Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World is now on social media with uplifting slash mind-bending updates throughout the week. So please follow me on Facebook at David Sachs Spiritual Tools or on Instagram, David Sachs Spiritual Tools. Hi, this is David Sachs and welcome to Spiritual Tools for an Outrageous World. Every week we do a little couples therapy between us and God. It's a chance to deepen and explore our most important relationship. Okay, I'm glad you're here. Uh, Pesach is upon us. So this is, um, this is big news and, and we've got we've to talk about all the amazing spiritual opportunities that are presenting themselves um, to us right now. And, and Pesach, you know, don't, don't be fooled. Don't be fooled by, by the, the historical nature of the holiday. Because Pesach is really about the future redemption. And um, the clearest way to, to see this, um, the most understandable way, is from Rabbi Soloveitchik, who, who explains the following, that the Pesach Seder, right, that's, that's Pesach night, which is like this giant opening in time-space where like light, the highest light, the light from the 50th level of heaven, the Shar Hamishim, which is like the top of heaven, is like shining through into this world in the strongest way. I mean, this is, maybe Yom Kippur can compare with Pesach night, but Pesach night is like it's in its own category um, in terms of, the, the intensity of the geula of the of the of the redemption which is which is manifesting itself, and so, in terms of the seder itself, um, we have a, a a halachic question really because, you know, we're not into interrupting, and that that goes in terms of um, you know orders of prayers. We don't like to interrupt them. We want to stay in the flow of them. We don't want to interrupt a blessing. For instance, everybody knows when, before we eat bread, we, we wash our hands. And then you don't talk from the time you say, on the tilat yudayim, over the washing of the hands. By the way, one of the great gematrias from Rabbi Wolfson, nitilat yadayim is gematria lechem min hashamayim, which means that the raising of the hands that you say before you eat the bread is, is the numerical equivalent of the bread is coming from heaven, right? Lechem min shamayim. And in fact, the man came from heaven. And, 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 and the, the rabbis asked, what blessing did they say over the man, right? And, and the answer is, Baruch atah Hashem elokinu melcholam hamotzi lechem min hashamayim. Right? God who brings forth Bread from heaven, right? Normally we say, since we have to plant and, you know, make the wheat into bread, but, but this came from heaven. So anyway, it's very appropriate that ah, that nitilat yadayim is gematria lechem min hashamayim. Because really, the essence of everything that we eat, you know, even if it's a, a hamburger or whatever it is, all the Rebbes say that really it's man. We're still eating man, it just has a container around it, a different form around it. Um, okay, so let's, let's get back to this idea that we don't like to make interruptions. 
And, and even after we wash our hands before bread, we don't like to make an interruption between Amitilat Yedayim and Amotzi Why? Why aren't we speaking? Because we don't want to make an interruption. Okay, so, so why then, if we're so careful about things like that, why then is the first part of the Seder, we say the first part of Hallel, and then in the middle of Hallel, we take a break and we eat dinner, and then we finish Hallel after dinner. Like, it would be very easy for us just to finish Hallel and then eat dinner. And then we'll pick up the next part of the Seder. Or, if you want to save Hallel, eat dinner and then say Hallel. But don't split Hallel into two parts when you don't have to. You hear the question. So, so Rabbi Soloveitchik says the following. He says, really... The Seder is divided up into two parts. The first part of the Seder, which the first Hallel is going on, is thanking God for taking us out of Egypt. The second part of the Seder is thanking God for bringing the Gula Shlema, the redemption, Mashiach. And what's so t- mind-bending, because like the, the time frame is so off, is that Right now, at our Seder table, we're, or, we're, we're already thanking God for having done something that he didn't do yet. <laughs> In other words, we're already, we have such certainty that God is bringing Mashiach, we're already celebrating and thanking God for something that hasn't happened yet. Do you understand? So, so in other words, you have, to, you have to broaden and expand your mind. And, and broaden your understanding of Pesach, because we see that, that what is the best representation of Pesach is Seder night, the Seder, right? They're, they're kind of, they correlate, they're kind of one and the same. So you see that the Seder itself is the first part, it's thanking God for Egypt. The second part, we're already thanking God for Mashiach. So, so Pesach is really very future looking too. That's the point. The point is, is that we have to understand that, that we're already thinking about the redemption. And the Zohar says that when God brings Mashiach, that redemption is going to be modeled on our being t- having been taken out of Egypt. So, so again, it's a very forward-looking holiday as well. You know, in fact, that might even be the essence of it, Okay. That's, that's, that's what I, I, I want to communicate with you guys. Okay. So with this in mind, I want to tell you um, some gematrias, talking about gematrias today. So, so there's some wild gematrias, and the, um, the Jikover Rebbe brings them um, in, uh, in his Sefer, in the Imre Noam, that's the name of his Sefer. And they're really, they're really amazing. And let me just... Um, let me just sort of like give you a frame of reference for understanding this. Um, for, for those of you who are unfamiliar with, with this kind of part, of part of Torah, is that every, you know, every month has a permutation. Um, in Hebrew, we call it a tziruf. Every month has a permutation, a tziruf, of the holiest name of God. So, so there's the four-letter name of God. And there are 12 different possible permutations of that, and one permutation for each month of the year. Okay? 
And by the way, because the same letter is repeated, there's two He's in Hashem's holiest name, Yudke Vavke, right? Um, that's why there are only 12. If, there, if those two He's were different, um, then there would be more permutations. So that's for you, um, you math experts out there who are saying, hey, there should be more than 12, but now you know why they're just 12. Okay, so, so it's very good because there are 12 months of the year, and now there's a different combination of Hashem's name assigned to that month. Very good. So what does that actually mean on a practical level? What it means is that every single month has a different energy to it. And the, the, the permutation of the letters of Hashem's name, which, which correspond to that month, is sort of like the DNA energy imprint, the signature of what the nature of that energy is for the month. Now that's just, just to take a step backwards, that's very interesting about Torah and, and, and how Torah sees the world differently than, say, science sees it right now. Because science understands time to be like this very steady state, kind of like almost par of entity, if you will. It just kind of keeps on going, and it is what it is, right? Okay, so there's relativity, and in certain circumstances, time will go faster or slower. That's fine, but we, we don't really talk about time having a personality in, in, in science. Whereas in Judaism, in Torah, we understand that some days are actually invested with Kedusha, with holiness, much more so than other days. And some months are very opportune for certain spiritual opportunities, more so or different from other months. Okay? So, so no, don't go astray and think that time itself has power, because that's a form of avodah because only God has power. The only power is God, okay? So time itself doesn't have power, but there's certain times when it's apropos to do something, because God created those periods of time as opportunities to do those things. So it's coming from God. Hopefully that's clear. It's important because people don't really, you see, we, we have a, a certain Torah astrology, but it's different from the pagan astrology. Um, we're just describing time. They're, they're saying, no, no, no. If you do it at this time, this is bad thing is going to happen. This is the right time to travel. This is the wrong time to travel. We don't, we don't really have that. It's, it's, it's different because everything is coming from God. However, you know, for instance, if you want to go swimming, springtime or summertime is a great time to go spring to go swimming. It's not that spring has the power of the swimming god in it. It's just that it's warm. That's a good time to go swimming. The winter is not a great time to go swimming because you'll get too cold. You understand? It's just a basic description of the opportunities available. Okay. Hopefully I've made the point. Now, now, if you remember, and we talked about this last in in last week's talk, um, which um, which which we talked to. It's I think the name of it was um, uh, "How does everything fit together?" I think that was that was the title or, or close to it. And and there was a big compare. There was a big analysis of how Nisan, this month of Pesach, this month of miracles that we're in right now, is is basically the beginning of the year, because it's the first month of the year. 
But we also know that there's this other kind of cycle going on simultaneously, which is the cycle of new years, right? And the new year begins in the month of Tishrei. So we have two major beginnings of the year. And in fact, the Talmud in Rosh Hashanah, um, Rabbi Yeshua and Rabbi Eliezer actually debate with each other, when was the world created? Was it created in the month of Tishrei? Because that's a month of super newness, and that's when the new year begins. Or was it created in the month of Nisan, which is the beginning of months? So, so Tosafos makes a, a famous statement reconciling these two different ideas. And he says something like super intense, which is that the thought to create the world went up in God's mind, so to speak, right? God doesn't have a body. He doesn't have a brain. But, you know, we, we express ourselves in this way so that we can communicate with each other. So the thought went up in God's mind to create the world on the first of Tishrei. And in fact, one of the most outrageous, like, Torahs, is, the Balaturim brings it. If you take the word Breshis, right, which is the first word of the Torah, which is the blueprint of, of, of reality, if you take the word Breshis, which means out of beginnings or in the beginning, God created the world, and you rearrange the letters of Breshit using every letter, it spells Be Aleph Tishrei, which means in the first day of the month of Tishrei. That's what the, that's using every letter of Rashi's. It's it's amazing. That's amazing. And you can look at the Balaturim. He he brings that. So so Tosfo says that it went up in God's mind to create the world on the first of Tishrei. Okay? And that's Rosh Hashanah for us. And and in fact it's 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 very deep because you might say and, and just to finish the thought, Tosfo says that, but the actual physical creation of the world happened on the first day of the month of Nisan. Okay? So, so but, but both, you see, are engines of newness, engines of creation, Tishrei and, 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 and Nisan. And in fact, they're 12 months to the year. And if you were to make a column, the first six months and the next six months, you would see that Nisan and Tishrei are exactly six months apart, and they, they're like sister months. They correlate with each other. Okay, so we haven't gotten to the amazing Gematria yet, but we're, we have to do a little bit more homework till we get there. So, so each month has this permutation of the letters Yud and He and Vav and He. And the rabbis correlate that with four words from the Torah. And they're using all of Tanakh right now, not just the five books, but all of the holy books of the Torah. Um, And they want to see, is there a four-word stretch in Tanakh that either begins with each of the letters in this combination, or those four words ends with the with 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 this sequence of letters. Okay, and then they bring it. So every single month has this four-word excerpt 
from the Torah, which correlates with the combination of letters for that month. Everyone with me so far? Okay. So now, here's the amazing thing. If you take the four-word combination um, for, for, uh, for Nissan, and it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's a great combination. You should know this because we say it in the purse quite a bit. It's Yismechu, you hear the Yud? Hashamayim, hey. V'tagel, vav, ha'aretz, hey. And that's all over the Siddur. Yismechu hashamayim v'tagel ha'aretz. Yudke vavke. Straight ahead. If you were to take the, if you were to take the, the gematria of that phrase, it's 1,900, I'm sorry, let me start again, 1,494. If you want to remember that, think of when did Columbus discover America? 1492? This is 1494, <laughs> okay? Now, listen to this. What do we say? Nissan is like the engine of creation, right? It's the first of the months. Well, what about the four-word combination of Tishrei? If you were to take the gematri of that, do you know what it adds up to? 1494. It's exactly the same. <laughs> so here you see that the, the DNA, the, the, the energy stamp which you're seeing in the Gamatria, this energy stamp, for Nisan and Tishrei are exactly the same. Because the four-word, the four-word um, phrase that correlates with that month are the same for each month. Okay. Now here comes the topping on the cake. That in itself is 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 quite amazing. Okay, and that that comes from, uh, let's see if I have the, the reference here, um, from the Bris Kuhuna Ha'olam. Okay, that's who, the, that's who the Jikover is quoting, and he was a student, the one who figured this out, was a student of the Magid of Mezrich, who of course was a successor to the Baal Shem Tov. Okay, so, so now here's, here, here it gets even more amazing. You ready for this? We know that God created the world. We're talking about we're talking about creation right now. And we know that God created the world with the with the Hebrew letters. Right? Now, the way to understand that, I, I always want to make this joke that it's not that God hammered the Dalid and the Vav together and made Detroit, right? That's not that's not how it works. Each of the letters is basically a different energy wavelength. And God took all these energy wavelengths and each wavelength, you know, eventually comes down in the form in this world as a letter, right? But it's an energy signature. God took all the different letters of the olive base, all these different energies, and combined them into the world, right? Which again is, that's Einstein. E equals MC squared, which is the idea that Energy becomes mass. God took his outer garment of light, right? And which is energy, light is energy. And he condensed it. That's called tzimtzum. 
He condensed it until it became the physical universe. Okay. So that's what we're saying. These energy, this energy that God used ultimately become the Hebrew letters. All right. So we said that creation happens on one level in Tishrei, and creation happens also in Nisan. And that, in fact, you see that they share the same number, 1,494. Now, are you curious what the number would be if I added up all the letters of the olive base? If I added up 1 and 2 and 3 and 4, olive and base and gimel and dalit, and then remember we get to Chaf, which becomes 20, and then Lamed, which becomes 30, and then we get to Tzadi, which is 90, and then we go to Kuf, which is 100, and then Resh, which is 200, and Shin, which is 300, and Tuf, which is 400. What if we just added them all together? What number do you think we get? It can't be, I see, you're shaking your head, it can't be, it can't be the same number, it's not going to be the same number, is it? Well, it's 1,400, and 95. So ima kolel, ima kolel, it's the same number. In other words, this energy of creation, and it shows you again how God, re- like, you see the Torah being validated on like, in the wildest, most amazing ways. So this energy of creation, the energy of all the letters, you see is the energy stamp of Tishrei and of Nisan, where we're in right now. So, again, what is Nisan all about? It's the month of miracles. And, and, and it's the month of Pesach. And, and it's not just talking about taking us out of Egypt. It's, it's that God is going to continue. God is going to continue to create the world because the world is evolving. The world is evolving toward perfection. Remember, The world that we're in right now is not finished yet. That's why we're here, to be partners with God through Torah and through mitzvahs to finishing off creation, the creation that God had in mind from the very beginning, a perfected world. So the world is still evolving toward that place. It's still being created. Now, not one, speaking about myself right now, to leave well enough alone, I thought, what can I add to this gematria? So I thought to myself, I got to look up if there's a word that's the gematria of 1,494. What if there's a word that correlates with that gematria? That would be outrageous. Wouldn't you want to know what that word is? So I looked it up, and there isn't a word. But in a way, there's something even better than a word. There's an entire verse from the Torah, which adds up to only one verse in the whole Torah, that adds up to 1,494. So don't you want to know what that verse is? Okay, I'm going to tell you. It's in Breshis. Well, it should be in Breshis, right? Because we're talking about creation. This whole thing is about creation. So this verse is going to be equal to all of the letters added up. And also what the um, month of Tishrei is, and also what the month of Nisan is. So this is like the energy, kind of like headquarters verse. All right. I looked it up. And if you want to see it for yourself, it's in Breshis, in Genesis, chapter 7, verse 10. 
Okay? And, um, and it says, And it came to pass, after this seven-day period, that the waters of the flood were upon the earth. Now, I'm going to give you my understanding of what that means. So, you know, it says that in the 600th year, that's when the waters of the flood burst out. Right? In Noah's time. This is what it's talking about. The mubble. The mubble. The flood. And the Zohar famously says, gives us a date um, approximately in the, in the 1840s. So now you've got to think about when the Zohar was being written. The 1840s of our current time, that's, you know, like a little more than 100 years ago. Um, that was the far distant future when they were when they were writing this Torah down, right? They were really looking ahead in the way distant future. And they said that what it means that the, that the waters are going to burst forth, the Zohar said that in the, there's an actual exact date, but it was, it's approximately in the 1840s, that the waters of innovation and knowledge are going to flood the earth. And all the rabbis point out that this was the beginning of the scientific revolution. That the world started rapidly changing at this period that the Zohar predicted and correlated with this verse that the waters in the 600th year are going to burst down, that the entire world is going to start changing and that, the, that, that all of this knowledge is going to flood the earth. Now, what started off with like the steam engine is now like advanced space travel and, you know, genetics and gene manipulation and, and, and computers and robots and wild stuff. If you think about how much the world and civilization has transformed over the last 150 years since the beginning of the scientific revolution, this is an amazing like prediction that the, that the Zohar made. So you see that when it's talking about the waters bursting forth, it's not just talking about the way we normally understand it uh, on a simple level, which is, oh, the flood came and it brought destruction. The Zohar is, is seeing it in a, in, a, in a much deeper way. It's understanding these waters as as in the context of, like it says in Yeshaya, one of the great psukim, that basically when Mashiach comes, that that knowledge of God is going to fill the world like the waters cover the sea. Okay, so it's understanding the waters in that context. Now, we've studied together the letter Aleph. And one of the one of the ways of understanding the, the, the letter Aleph is you've got the upper Yud and then a Vav that goes across, right, diagonally. That stands for the heavens, right, the Rakia. And then you've got the lower Yud. So you've got the upper Yud, right, this line which, 
which sort of like is a demarcation line of our dimension, if you will. And then below that is us, the, the revealed area. That's the lower Yud. So in other words, the, the Aleph, and this is Rabbi Yitzhak Isaac Chaver, who I'm quoting now, the, the Aleph is like this map of the universe. But the idea is, is that the upper Yud stands for the upper waters, okay, which is like the higher levels of knowledge, right? The, the, the secrets of the Torah. Okay. And the the lower the, the the lower yud is those aspects of the Torah and knowledge and of the world that are revealed. Okay. So now let's revisit this verse. And remember, this verse adds up to 1494, which is all the Aleph base added up together, and it's also separately the month of Nisan, this month of Pesach, which is creation, the beginning of creation, and the month of Tishrei, separately, right? That's its own 1494, which is also creation. So creation is all over the place, and it's in this passage also. Now, keeping the Zohar in mind, and how water coming down means revelation of like new aspects of reality in mind. Let's read the verse again. And it came to pass after the seven-day period, now, what does seven stand for? Seven stands for Shabbos. And what's the Messianic era called? The day that will be all Shabbos, right? So seven represents Shabbos, but it also represents the Messianic period because it's called Yom Shekulo Shabbos, the day that will be all Shabbos. So it came to pass after the seven-day period that the waters of the flood were upon the earth, <laughs> Do you understand what that means? That means in the, in, the, in the Messianic period, the waters of the flood, the upper waters, are going to come down and be revealed in our dimension amidst the lower waters on the earth. Which means, to put it all together now, what does it mean that this verse is adding up to creation? All the olive bays because creation is still being created and it's never going to stop being created as the world itself evolves closer and closer in godliness and more and more of the unrevealed, the upper waters are coming down to the level of the revealed. Do you understand? It's hinting at that ongoing process that's taking place at the next stage of reality when we reach the perfected world, and it continues to evolve that, that, that the, upper, the upper waters, new information keeps on coming down and becoming revealed. Because as we journey more and more into the infinity of God, more and more secrets are coming from above to below. And that's what that passage is saying, as I understand it. So it's wild. Okay. So now I want to... I want to go from the, the most beyond, because that's like super beyond, okay? I'm going to switch all the way to the end of this spectrum. I'm going to tell you a halacha of kashering pots for Pesach, okay? And believe it or not, we're on the same subject, but we're going to go to the opposite extreme right now.
in terms of the scope of the Torah, right? We just went to beyond the heavens, literally, to now the pots in your kitchen. Now, in general, if you want to have a kosher kitchen, right? We should all have kosher kitchens. If you want to have a kosher kitchen, you need separate pots and separate um, uh, metal utensils for your meat dishes and separate from your dairy dishes, right? It's not just that we don't make cheeseburgers. It's not just that we don't mix milk and meat together in the same dish. We don't mix it together in the same pots or on the same forks or on the same knives. So everything has to be separate. Okay. Now, what... Now, the rabbis were very against the idea of saying, oh, you know something, um, this pot right now is a meat pot, but if I boil this pot in a larger pot, if I kosher this pot, right, I can turn this pot into a dairy pot. So why don't I just turn this meat pot into a dairy pot and we'll, you know, we'll warm up the cream of mushroom soup in, in this pot, which will be permitted now because we koshered the pot. It used to be a meat pot. Now it's a dairy pot. No problem. Everything's kosher. So the rabbis were not into that at all. They don't want you flipping over your silverware, like today it was meat, tomorrow it's going to be dairy. They don't want you to do it with your pots. They don't want you doing it. You know why? Very, very simple answer. You're going to get confused. <laughs> and you say, I'm not going to get confused. You are going to get confused. Over time, you're going to blow it. Okay? So just don't, don't do it. Okay? That's the simple way out of that problem. Before you get confused, don't do it. Okay. Now, by Pesach, we have an exception. That's why we're talking about this. Very interesting exception. Because, let's say, you know, you also have to have new pots. Well, they don't have to be new. But you have to have a whole new set of pots and silverware for Pesach. Right? Because... We, we, we have this concept that if you cook a certain food in a pot, that the taste of that thing gets absorbed into the walls of the pot or into the utensils, okay? And, and the idea is that chametz, which we're not allowed to eat, is going to get into the walls of the pot. Now, don't don't misunderstand that. That doesn't mean that a breadcrumb is going to enter into the walls of your pot or your fork or something like that. But the taste of that is going to get in. And we have a principle in Torah called Tam Ki'ikr, which is that the taste of something contains the essence of that thing. Even if it's not physically there, it's there through its taste. Okay? So for that reason, we need new pots and silverware for Pesach. Now you might say to yourself, hey, hold on, that's getting very expensive. Where am I going to get all new pots and pans and, and, and silverware, you know, or, you know, flatware, whatever, for Pesach? Okay, don't worry, don't worry. You can take the, the stuff in your kitchen that you use all year round 
And every shul has this. They have um, Pesach koshering day. And you take it to the shul, and they have these giant boiling cauldrons and water, and they'll dip your pot in or your silverware in, and voila, it's perfect for Pesach now. Okay? So just call up your local synagogue and find out what day they're having it, and you can bring your pots and pans there, and everything is good. All right. Now, here's the point. The point is, is that, you know how I told you, you can't take a a meat pot during the year and make it into a dairy pot? You're not allowed to do that. Here's what you are allowed to do. Here's the exception. Let's say I have a meat pot, and I'm going to make it kosher for Pesach. I can turn that meat pot into a dairy pot for Pesach. And then, when the year starts, when Pesach ends, I continue to use it as a dairy pot. Does everyone hear that? So the exception to the rule is, during the year, I can't take a meat pot and turn it into a dairy pot. But, if I'm taking that meat pot and turning it into a dairy pot so that I can use it on Pesach as a dairy pot, then as the year continues, I can continue to use it as a dairy pot. That's the, that's the interesting thing. Now, I want to say, based on that, I want to say a thought, okay? And here's what I'm getting to. Do you understand how powerful the energy of change is that's in the air right now? you can change your entire self over (laughs) in a way that you can't change yourself over during the year. You can change yourself over with this month of Nisan and especially the culmination of it, the, the, the collected power of it, which is happening during Pesach. And that this change can last during the entire year. And I want to tell you something. When you go to the mikveh, there are two different mikvahs. There's the people mikveh and the keli mikveh, right? So, so if you want to take a pot to the mikveh, you go to the keli mikveh. That's the, you know, the utensils mikveh. And you don't have to take off your clothes for that. You just kind of dip your pot in and you're in business. It's done. And then you have the people mikveh, right? That's just for people. That's not for pots. Okay. But... The world being what the world is, sometimes people are in a hurry, and you know, uh, you know, I I go to or before the pandemic, I I went every week, and God willing, I'll be going again. Um, so go to the mikveh, and you see some guys will be bringing their pots to the people mikveh, <laughs> which you're not supposed to do really. But anyway, there you go. So one time I was in the mikveh. And the guy in front of me, like, you know, the, the, by the men, several guys go at the same time. I know it's not that way by the women, but by the men, you know, you've got, it's, it's a different experience. So, so I'm standing there, and the man in front of me is dunking a pot, and the man behind me is also dunking a pot. <laughs> and I thought to myself, I'm also dunking a pot. 
my body is a pot. My body is a pot for my soul. So, so it's sort of like this idea of Kalim that we can switch over from milk to meat or from meat to milk or switch over these vessels. It's very relevant to us because that, that's us too, you know? We're this combination, right, of body and soul, right? So there is, there is this very relevant aspect to our experience based on this halacha. So now, I want to give you two practical examples of how we can change ourselves over, okay? Because... You know, the idea that this energy of changes in the world is very exciting. But we have to know how to do it, right? You know, um, so I'm going to give you two, two suggestions. And the first one is very much related to Pesach. Now, Rav Frimmer, uh, the Eretzvi, points out, that there are three stages to getting rid of your chametz. And he's going to correlate this with another three in a second, but let's just go over the first three. The first three is you have to find your chametz, right? You have to find it. Um, so that's called bedikas uh, chametz, right? You search it out and the, the, the night before Pesach, and, and by the way, this year, it's, it's not going to be Friday night, which is the night before Pesach, because Pesach is Motzei Shabbos this year. Um, so this would be Thursday night we do this. So so, um, so we're looking for the chametz and trying to identify it. And remember, chametz stands for everything wrong in the world. Everything wrong in our house, everything wrong in ourselves, everything wrong in our heart, everything wrong in our relationships, right? It's... It's all this stuff we gotta we gotta locate it first. We gotta find it first, and then the second stage is we burn it, right? Which you know is for me probably maybe often many years the best davening of the whole Pesach is when it comes time to burn the burn the chametz, because you're 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 seeing in front of your eyes you're burning all the evil of the world, you're burning all the impurities of your heart, right? By the way, talking about koshering, that's one of the main ways to kosher. You can kosher with a blowtorch, right? And, and uh, that gets rid of all the impurities within the, the substance. So we're burning all the crumbs that we find the next day. And then we do the nullification process. We make a statement, which is, you know, whether I found it, whether I've gotten rid of it or not, it should become like dust of the earth. And then that final declaration is, is the final getting rid of it all. Okay. So Rav Frummer, knowing that, that chametz, right, that all these bread products that we're getting rid of, stands for the Yetzirah, wants to compare it. It's in Gomorrah Sukkah, page 52b, if you want to see it for yourself. He says there's a three-stage process that the Yetzirah, the evil inclination, comes to a person. First, it comes to you like a wayfarer, right? Someone who's just kind of, you're outside your house and it's, you kind of see a stranger and the stranger kind of chats you up, right? Hey, what's up? How you doing? 
Hello? <laughs> What's going on? And, and then, the, but you don't invite him into your house. And then the next stage is you do invite them into your house. Right? This is how, how the Yetzirah gets to us. First, it's this outside thought flittering around our heads, flittering in our thoughts. And then we dwell on it. We're intrigued. We think about it. And that's the stage that the Gomorrah says is when you invite the wayfarer, the traveler, into your house. That's when this outside thought, remember the Yetzirah is an angel. It's not you. So a lot of times when you get thoughts where you're like, am I such a low life that I thought of that thing or that I feel that thing? It's not you. It's the Yetzirah. And you should know that. Because if you don't know that, you're going to think very low of yourself. And, and you shouldn't. You know, like when you have like a really an antisocial you know, or a disgusting thought, the first thing that you should say is, ah, it's the Yetzirah. Right? You have to, you have to ID it. You have to identify it and, and mark it as such. It's very important. Otherwise, you're going to get very confused about who you are. So, but after you think about it for a while and you're intrigued by it, uh, then you bring it into your house. Now, all of a sudden, this wayfarer is in your house. And what's the third stage? The guest takes over the house. And now it owns you. And, you know, I think for better or for worse, on different levels, all of us have experienced this process where there's something that, you know, we didn't even know about before. It's like we encountered it like you encounter a guest on the street. We didn't even know about it, really. Then all of a sudden we're intrigued by it Next thing we know, it's in our house. The next thing we know, it's taken us over. And it's a, it's a drag. It's, a, it's, it's not, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel good. But that's the three-stage process. And Ralph Frimer is saying that getting rid of chametz is also a three-stage process. And that it correlates with what we just learned. Now, I want to focus in on the first stage of it, because... In terms of my own, you know, personal character work, this is the part that I found the most um, helpful for me. And I want to share it with you. And again, this is, I, I think, super practical. Okay. And, and again, I'm offering this to you in the spirit of how we can become renewed using this opportunity for newness, which is in the air now. Okay. We talked about on a sort of Kabbalistic level, all of this energy of newness, which is like very strong right now, how can we tap into it and make it very focused? So that's, that's what I'm trying to do right now. Give you the following information. You see, once you invite this guest in the house, it's very hard to kick him out. It's hard because he's very comfortable on your couch <laughs> and he's working through all of your bottles of liquor and he's very happy not to leave. And you want to pull him out, but he's a little bit stronger than you are. That's not going to work. You're not going to win that fight. 
So where did I go wrong? So I'll tell you where. I'll tell you where. Inviting him to the house to begin with. Don't let him into the house. Do you understand? Don't let him into the house. So what does that mean in terms of in terms of the Yitzhahara? What did we say? We said the first stage is when the wayfarer, like this traveler out in the street, goes, Hey, what's going on? What's up? Tries to get you into a conversation. Or, hey, that looks good. Or, hey, who's that over there? Right? Like, it will come in every different language. That correlates with bedikas chametz, with locating the chametz in your house. Now remember, we have this Torah several times, and to me this is one of the great cash Torahs, which is we think that the eye sees and then the heart desires. Right? The eye sees and then the heart desires. But it's deeper than that. If the heart doesn't desire, the eye doesn't see. If you haven't got it in your heart to begin with, you're not going to notice it when it's around you. Okay? So we want to get the crumbs out of our heart. Right? We want to get the crumbs. We want to get the crumbs out of our heart. But in order to do it, we need to know what they look like. In other words, Bedikas Chametz correlates with the traveler out on the street. How? Because Bedikas Chametz is us going, oh, there's some Chametz. There's some Chametz. That's Chametz. And we have to know when we have certain thoughts, we have to be able to go, there's the Yetzirah. That's the Yetzirah. That's the Yetzirah coming to me. Do you understand? Because the problem is, is that the wayfarer, this traveler in the street who chats us up, doesn't look like a supervillain, right? He doesn't have glowing, fiery eyes. He's just kind of, he's just chugging along. Doing his thing. Hey, that looks like an interesting person. I don't have to be afraid of that person. That's why you have to be able to learn how to identify chametz. That's why bedikas chametz correlates with the traveler out in the street. If you recognize him for what he is, then you're not going to get into that initial conversation to begin with much less invite him into your home. And that's where the war can be won, not engaging with that initial level of thinking. Now, that's going to take work, by the way. That's not easy. But at least the battle line has been drawn. At least you know where the war can be won. And that's very, very valuable. Okay? So, and, and again, don't get neurotic about this. 
It's like, oh, I started thinking about it. No, no, no. As soon as you recognize what it is, and you'll get better and better about it. But remember, the rabbis teach that the Yetzirah is an angel and that it renews itself and its tricks, its bag of tricks every single day. So you will never know it better than it knows you. It will always know you better than you know it. So you have to have consummate respect in terms of dealing with your own Yetzirah. Because it's, 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 it's trickier than you are. So, so, but over time, you will become practice and expert in identifying it. Okay. That's, that's practical advice number one. Practical advice number two is always around Pesach time, and this year is no exception, we're reading Parshas Vayikra. Now, Parshas Vayikra is um, is is famous, really, because the very first word Vayikra has a tiny little letter Aleph at the end of it, and it transforms this word. Without that Aleph, the word means like by chance. Right, like like random events, and 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 it says that that um, that by Bilam, who is the greatest prophet of the non-Jews, that that's how Hashem would happen upon him. It was like just a, a happening. But with Moshe Rabbeinu, when you add that letter Aleph, the word changes to Vayikra, which means a calling. In other words, it was a much more deliberate, much more um, advanced uh, relationship. It wasn't just something that sort of just happened out of the blue. No, no, no. It was like, oh, no, this is planned because we have this relationship. It's, a, it's, an, it's an exalted thing. And Moshe Rabbeinu, in his humility, felt almost embarrassed that, that he had this very, you know, unique relationship with Hashem. So he didn't want to write that letter Aleph at all. And so there was a compromise, and the Medrash says, okay, he wrote it, but he wrote it in a small way because he didn't want to make himself into a big shot. Now, in this small Aleph, I think you see something really... There, there's so many Torahs. There's a whole vast literature in Torah on the small Aleph. But we're going to add something, add something maybe new here, okay? Which is... You know, there's another Aleph, and so to speak, Kaviyocho, that Aleph is Hashem. <laughs> right? Because Aleph is the letter, is the number one, and Hashem is one. So Hashem, so to speak, Hashem is not a giant intergalactic letter Aleph, right? He has, God has no form, he's beyond form, as, as, I, as I always tell you that I would say to my children growing up, God doesn't have a body. He makes bodies, right? So God has no form. But so to speak, God, Kaviyocho, is compared to the letter Aleph because Aleph stands for the number one and God is one. And you know something? Each one of us has a little piece of God inside of us. 
That's our soul. So isn't it cool that Moshe Rabbeinu, when he's talking about this amazing relationship that he has with God, he makes it into a little olive? Because each one of our souls is a little olive. And it's like an emanation from the giant olive. (laughs) And we've got the little olive inside of us. Do you understand? It's like there's God's presence and God emanates a ray of his divinity to each one of us. And we have within our souls like an aspect of that. That's the little letter olive. But you see... If you make, remember, what does Vayikra mean with the letter Aleph, with the small letter Aleph? It means calling. If you want to hear God's voice, you have to make yourself a little bit small. You have to have humility. See, because each one of us from birth is hardwired to think that like we're God. As, as, uh, the Beis Yosef, that was the second Ishbitzer Rebbe, said so amazingly, so mind-blowingly, that deep, deep down, and this is not a rational thought, by the way, but he says it, he says it, deep, deep down, each of us thinks that we created ourselves. Isn't that amazing? I mean, we know we have parents, right? Rationally speaking, we know we have parents. And yet, deep, deep, deep down, each one of us thinks that we created ourselves. That means that each one of us starts off in life as a large letter olive. And our job over time, over our own personal development, our own spiritual growth, till our last breath on earth, is to make ourselves in harmony with the big olive, with God, to understand that we have an amazing role in creation. Each one of us, God has made partners with, to perfecting the world. Each one of us is so extremely important. But we have to understand where our place is within the infinity of God. And if you want to hear God's voice, because Vayikra means the calling, God called to us, but it's with a small olive. We have to take that large olive, that sense that we created ourselves, that we're hardwired with from birth, and we have to evolve it into a small olive. And if you evolve it into a small olive, if you understand that you're absolutely essential to the world, but that you're a small part of the world, that you're a cog within this massive, and the the structure doesn't work without you. But nonetheless, you're like one piece of something so much larger. If you can evolve yourself to that stage, then you can hear God's voice. Then you become the small olive that completes Vayikra, that turns the idea of randomness into God calling to you. And that happens through the act of humility, of making yourself small, of understanding that The whole world doesn't revolve around you, you know? It's like to be outwardly focused. What does the world need? What does my friend need? What do my my children need? What do do you need? What what can I do for you? When you become outwardly focused, 
you turn your big Aleph into a small Aleph, and then you can hear the calling of God. And that's another opportunity that we have, especially at Pesach time. Because again, Pesach time is about the world being renewed and the fact that God can absolutely do anything. Which is, I mean, it's, it's beyond awesome. Because, because Pesach is recounting the fact that nature really doesn't exist. It's only God. It's only God. And I'm going to wrap it up. I'm going to end right now. But I want to tell you just one of my favorite stories. And um, and I re-experienced this uh, again this past week in, in a way that I'm, I'm really still trying to recover from. You know, it wasn't anything bad. In fact, it was something positive. But just, I, and, and, and it's the point that I want to leave you with, okay? I was um, kind of walking out in the uh, in my neighborhood, trying to trying to renew my amuna, because I you know I had a conversation with someone and and they got me worried you know because they were so worried and because they were so worried about something I he kind of got me worried about it and then I I thought why am I getting worried about it you know and then I thought oh I. I guess I I, I'm, I have to renew my amuna, my my faith. And then I remembered the great teaching from Rabbi Wolfson Shlita, who said the following: that amuna is like if someone comes up to you and asks you, "Did you eat breakfast today?" and you go, "No, I ate breakfast yesterday." Like, what? <laughs> who does that help that you ate breakfast yesterday? It certainly doesn't help you. You know, so amuna. Is is like, is like breakfast. You you have to eat it every day for it to be relevant. In other words, the 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 breakthrough thought here is that I think most people think Amuna is like the sofa in my living room. Once I buy it, I own it, and I have it. Once I achieve faith, whatever that means, I have faith, and you know, I have it. But it's not. Amuna is breakfast. <laughs> if you don't have it every day, then you don't have it, period. You understand? So because I got worried when this guy was like stressing me out with, you know, his, his you know, problematic reading of events, I thought, Ay, I've got to renew my Amuna, clearly, because I'm not doing that. So I'm going to go and take a walk and talk to God. So I'm walking around and, you know, I'm thinking that that this project, whatever, that I want it to go well, I'm realizing, wait a second, this project is like one little pot, like I'm sitting out in the street, right? So I've got like a big area around me, open area around me. I'm like, this project is like one little pot. But the world is filled with pots. Why? God can bring down the blessing into any of these pots. There's no shortage of pots. Why am I so focused on this one pot? It's silliness. It's silliness that I'm making God so small, right? 
Anyway, the next day, something totally out of the blue happened where something wonderful happened. In a different area of my life. And it took me a while to realize. I was like, that's what I was praying for yesterday. That's the other pot. (laughs) That's the other pot I wasn't thinking about. And then I almost had, it wasn't a crisis, that's way too big a word, but I was like, did my walk outside yesterday, did my conversation yesterday with God, which was essentially an extended prayer, trigger that happening? Is it possible that that made that? Okay. It it was hard for me, it was hard for me to fathom that there was a cause and effect there. And yet, obviously, there were, it seems to me obvious that, that, that there was. But how could it be? And it reminded me of the following. A, a joke I've shared with you before, but to me, this is the deepest. So, there's a man and he's trying to find a parking space in New York City. And I'm telling you, I've had this experience. I'm about to probably have it again. I hope not. It's very uncomfortable. Trying to find a parking space in Manhattan can take you forever, especially if you have a an appointment, like you're trying to get to Minion or you've got, you're meeting someone. It's, it's maddening. It's actually maddening. Okay. You can't find a place to put your car. And you can drive around for 40 minutes and not find a place to put your car. Literally, I'm not exaggerating, okay? So, anyway, the story goes that the the man, is he's got an important business appointment. He's got to be on time for this. He's in Manhattan. He's looking for a parking space. He knows how hard it is to find. He starts promising God that if God sends him a parking space, he's going to start keeping this and he's going to start doing that and he's going to start doing this. And then suddenly, right in front of the building, a parking space opens up and he goes, never mind, God, I just found one myself. (laughs) Now, to me, I'm telling you, that joke is the deepest. Because let's be a little bit analytical. What went wrong? What went wrong? So you can say to me, oh, well, the guy's not religious. That's why he, you know, attributed it to himself and not to God. Um, really? That guy, not, that guy was just talking to God. <laughs> He's talking to God in his car at a time of need. I, I would say that's actually a pretty high level of religiousness. So now we're talking about this happening not to your average Joe, but to an extremely religious person. So now it's actually we need an urgent answer to this problem, because if, if such a thing can go wrong in someone who's literally working on their relationship with God, who's doing... You know, if we want to use fancy terms, he's doing his bodidus in his car, right? He's like, he's talking to God. And still, when God answers his, his prayer, he attributes it to himself. What is going wrong? And what I would like to suggest is the following. You know, and I'm going to quote Rip Shlomo because he used to say it all the time. 
Why are you making God so small? You see? And this is the point, really, that I want to end on. You can reach the stage that you believe that there's a God. You believe that God made the world. You believe that God is still involved in every aspect of your life. You believe that God responds to prayer. And you know what? You still aren't believing in God enough. Because if we're amazed, and I'm speaking for myself right now, because I couldn't understand it. I had this walk, I, and I, it was this spiritual epiphany. There are thousands of pots all around me. And then all of a sudden, that happens the next day, and I'm like, well, wait a second. <laughs> Is there any and I thought to myself, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm making God too small. God can do anything. God can do anything at any time. And he really is listening to us. And he really can change nature at any time. And he really can bring the Gu'ula Shlema, this Pesach, any day, every day. It's real. It can happen at any time. And so here is a thought that I want to leave you with, okay? Just a one-line message. Let's begin, if we want to harness our newness, let's begin with this step. Let's make our newness new. Let's not deal with our old concept of what newness is. Let's stretch our minds and bring ourselves to the place where we're where we are renewing our concept of newness. And by doing so we're going to make the biggest vessel in the entire world to hold the highest highest light. Okay, everyone should have a wonderful redemptive, freeing, beautiful, mind-expanding, heart-expanding, soul-expanding, love-expanding, Pesach. And we should all be together this year in Yerushalayim HaRakadosh. Thanks for listening. We do this every week, so join in again next Sunday for our new podcast where we explore the amazingness of life. And review us and send in any comments or suggestions I'd love to hear him.